Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. 1 Kings, if you need to check the table of contents, no problem. We're going to be in the Old Testament. You realize the Bible is a big book, but it only has two parts. The Old Testament are the, the books that were written before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, is the portion written immediately after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In the Old Testament, the writers predict the coming of the Messiah. They, pre- they prophesy, predict that Jesus is going to send a Savior. Uh, in the New Testament, the writers say Jesus was the prophesied, the, the promised Savior, and he's going to come back and end history on God's terms. So while you're turning to 1 Kings 2, I want to read something our Lord Jesus said. But we start a new series today uh, on King Solomon, a believer who blew it big time, a a big shot who shot himself in the foot. But uh, let me read something Jesus said about Solomon. In Matthew, he says, uh, "Look Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet, Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his or her life? And why are you worried, obsessing about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. But I say to you that not even Solomon himself, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. You know, as he says that, he mentions Solomon in passing Sherry, and he kind of assumes you know a lot about Solomon, enough you can kind of connect the dots. Uh, and I think the question that I had to ask myself is, uh, how much about Solomon do I really know? I mean, I've, I've taught this content before, but it's been a while, and a lot of the details of Solomon's life aren't real familiar uh, readily anyway to me. And so I hope that all of us can learn a little bit more about this person's life that Jesus mentions and just kind of assumes we should know about. So when he says, uh, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these, we can learn some lessons from Solomon. And they're not all bad, but we will, Dennis, we'll see a lot of bad examples in the life of Solomon, but we'll also see some good things as well. But uh, before we dive into uh, this portion of our worship, feeding on God's Word, let's pray that we'll be teachable uh, to the Spirit who inspired this to illuminate to us, despite the failures and the weaknesses of the teacher, for sure. And let's also pray for our troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, Doug Strange, pray for us in that direction, would you? Amen. Thank you, Doug. Uh, you know, in, in some key way, Solomon was a spiritual superstar but he also did some seriously sketchy things in his life. And uh, the statement that readily comes to mind would be First uh, Kings 11.3 that says Solomon had 700 wives. And uh, that would be wives with a capital W with a stat- full status of princess legally. And 300 concubines. Those are wives but with a lower legal social status uh, than a full princess. And his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Now, uh, you know, one thing you need to realize when you're reading about uh, the characters in Scripture, 
when you're reading narrative portions of Scripture, the stories, the events, uh, quite often the, the Scripture, uh, Olga, is descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. The fact that Abraham only lived in a tent, never built a house, was not told to us so we'd all live in tents. There was a reason for that, for him. It describes what he did. It doesn't prescribe that spiritual Christians live in tents and it's only the unspiritual types that live in houses or something like that. So quite often we have descriptions of what happened without prescribing it or approving it. Another way you could say it is the Bible does catalog, but it does not condone the selfish, sinful actions of the people. So he was uh, using his clout to uh, be, a, shall we say, a little bit extravagant, uh, you know, in this area. And the Scripture doesn't confirm it or approve of it. And in fact, it leads to a lot of big problems. But you got to realize that, uh, you know, when you read the stories of all the heroes of the Bible, Anthony, you better read it by holding your nose because all of these people except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ, have some issues. Uh, we all stumble in many ways. But that statement about the 700 wives, the 300 lower uh, level wives, is the basis for this little conversation after a Sunday school class recently. Uh, the little girl has her Bible and she says, uh, to her friend there, I know why King Solomon was so rich. All those wives of his had jobs. <laughs> and so that would bring in, you know, a lot of income. So that's good. That's probably what it was. Uh, who was Solomon? Let's do some questions and answers as we anticipate the section-by-section section study of First Kings 1-12 through 12 as we look at the life of Solomon, Lord willing, in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, well, Solomon, the short answer is Solomon was the third king of Israel. Uh, the first king of Israel was Saul. The second was David. And the third was Solomon. After Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. And we have two nations out of the one. In the north, they're called Israel. In the south, they're called Judah. But we'll get into that later. Uh, we might say the I call that the United Tribes of Israel, UTI, because after Solomon dies, we've got the Divided Tribes of Israel. But we might summarize the three first kings this way. Solomon was Israel's first king. He, he was a tall, good-looking, powerful guy, but half-hearted toward God. David became king after defeating Goliath and other things and was clearly God's designated leader after the disaster Saul turned out to be. And uh, he messed up big, but he repented big. And now Solomon, who was the son, one of the sons, and we'll see some of the intrigue the next couple of weeks. This wasn't easy, Geraldine. You might think since David was in tune with God and knew Solomon was supposed to be the next king, he has, David's got a lot of wives. He doesn't, you know, we might say the reason that, uh, David could not build the temple was because he was excessively violent toward enemies, both internal and external. And that's the reason he was not allowed to build the temple. Uh, that wasn't Solomon's problem. I made this up all by myself this week. Solomon was a lover, not a fighter. Uh, and he was given the privilege, kind of standing on the shoulders of the giant, his father, to build the temple. But uh, his wives caused him to compromise big time. So he was the first ancestor king, the first son of a previous king. He built the temple and loved many foreign women. Now, during his reign... 
Israel enjoyed uh, basically prosperity for the vast majority of it, and they controlled more land area than at any time in their history. In fact, um, yeah, uh, there were promises given early in Genesis that the people of God would control the area from the river of Egypt, which wasn't the Nile, but the Wadi Egypt, all the way to the Euphrates. And the Euphrates comes up here. It goes all the way over to Iraq. But they control a larger land tract and have more uh, material prosperity than at any other time during their history. But uh, let's see what the Scripture says about Solomon. Look at 1 Kings 2 in verses 10 through 11. We're jumping over some material we'll cover in the next week or two about the intrigue and the details of actually setting all this up after David is dying and dies. But we read in chapter 2, verse 10, Then David slept, slept's a euphemism for the death of a believer, uh, with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon's And Solomon, that's David's, son, the selected uh, successor, sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And he had a 40-year reign, and he enjoyed a lot of building projects. He didn't have a lot of major wars to fight. It comes unraveled toward the end. He has to deal with some outside issues. But for the most part, this is the golden era of Old Testament history. He as a nation, they enjoyed great prosperity, but then, as we say, as soon as he dies, we have a civil war and a split. Uh, he was a good, but not uh, a perfect ruler in many ways, and he has a good, but not a great start. Look at chapter 3, same book, First Kings. Let's see what we read about the beginning phases of his ministry. And he's very famous for uh, being uh, offered one request from God. I tell you how warped my childhood was. I spent a lot of my first and second grade uh, thinking about if a genie offered me three wishes, what would I wish for? I, re- I remember I spent a, just a just a huge amount of time wondering about stuff like that. And of course, I wanted to play pitch for the Yankees and you know have a mansion and do something else. But uh, that was my immature Ben first attempt to do that, but I finally decided I don't need three wishes. I just need one. If the genie gave me three wishes, I'd just say, I wish that everything I wish for from now on will come true. And then you're covered. You know? So, uh, But Solomon uh, is is told, ask whatever you want, and you're going to be my guy on the throne, so I'm going to give it to you, and we'll see his famous answer. But notice, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon, early phases of his reign, formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh's king, with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her in the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord. We've already got some compromise there. This is uh, probably not even his first wife, but we know he's going to get up to 700, Ashley. So you you got to start somewhere, you know, so he's getting the, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, the people of Israel were still sacrificing on the high places. They were worshiping God in the wrong places in the wrong ways because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord. There's no doubt he loved the Lord. Uh, even though he's flawed. And even though he does some really sketchy things. Walking in the statutes of his father David. Except the one big thing at this phase early on. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. They kind of commandeered formerly uh, pagan oriented altars. And were using that to worship Yahweh. 
And how many central sanctuaries was the nation of Israel supposed to have? But that's inconvenient to only have one. They wanted to make it convenient. Sometimes when we make stuff too convenient, discipleship's about discipline. It's not about convenience. Being a disciple isn't convenient by definition. So we're going to make it convenient for you. By definition, you're you know, shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the high place. Solomon, and that was the, the best of options. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. This actually really happened, no doubt about it. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Just, I'm going to give you one wish. You tell me. Now, you're on the throne following your dad. You, you realize the position you're in. You're the quarterback for the Super Bowl team, as it were, in a theological sense. And Solomon says, you have shown great loving kindness. That's a special word in the Hebrew, hesed. We'll talk about that as we go through this. Uh, to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And David leaked some oil too, didn't he? But generally, didn't have a perfect, righteous, sinless walk, but he had a generically uh, devoted life with some major exceptions. Uh, you have reserved for him, that is David and David's son now, this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on a stone as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant, that is, he's talking about himself, Solomon, king in place of my father David. Yet I'm just like a little kid. I'm just like a little child. And he's a grown adult, but he's being very humble and realizing that he doesn't know the ropes and doesn't know everything he needs to know to do a good job yet. I don't know how to go out and come in. Your servant, that is himself, is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant, not a big palace or a lot of money or a lot of acclaim or a lot of fame or a mansion somewhere away from a railroad crossing or something like that, Give your servant an understanding heart. Give me uh, uh, hakama. Give me wisdom to judge, lead your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It's beyond human ability. I need you to help me. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked that thing. So God said to him, because you've asked this thing, you want discernment, you want good judgment, you want wisdom to be a great kingdom uh, for my people and glorify me. Because you've asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, not asked uh, riches for yourself, uh, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment, understand just justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. You got it. Uh, behold, I have given you a wise and a discerning heart so that there... Uh, there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. Literally, humanly speaking, he's the wisest person who ever lived. Jesus is in a separate category, obviously, but of homo sapiens, other than that, he's the guy. Uh, I've also given you what you have not asked as a wise king of my nation. You're going to have riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And then he says, God says to him, if you walk, see that, Katie, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, I'll prolong your days. Now, again, you're going to see in this account throughout that God is extremely generous with David. I mean, I think uh, this is a slippery slope. 
You know, because you might say, well, man, David did some really slimy things like adultery and murder, and yet God doesn't seem too upset about it. Uh, you know, God is going to look at the totality of your Christian life with a loving Father's lens, uh, realizing that uh, we all stumble in many ways. And it's amazing how generous is uh, the Lord is in describing David's reign without denying his serious problems. And we're going to see the principle is God's not any less gracious to believers who stumble than the people who come to Christ for the first time. But the fallout of our faithlessness does linger in this world. So you're much better off doing it the right way. But you notice the generosity. I said that last week about how generous Jesus is with his disciples. You know, He does a miracle so they catch 153 fish, which is a record in that size net. And then he says, bring some of the fish you caught. Remember? And he didn't, they didn't catch the fish. He caught the fish for them. He created the fish for them. But you will notice that. Now also, realize, if this pulpit represents the life of Christ, including his perfect life, his death to pay for our sins and his resurrection. The Old Testament's written all before that and anticipates that, and it works after some basic promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God is going to send a Savior, he's going to be a lamb, he's going to be a lion, he's going to pay for sin, he's going to end history on God's terms. That's the unconditional floor of biblical prophecy. But on top of that foundation... God gives the nation out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, a covenant, a constitution. It's called the Mosaic Law. That wasn't given to the United States of America. It wasn't given to the Amorites. It was given to Israel as a special nation to represent God. And throughout their history, their leaders are told, hey, you know what the constitution is. It's the Mosaic Law. And as you and the nation follow the Mosaic Law, I will give you peace and prosperity. And if you don't, over a period of many generations, you'll face all kinds of calamity, up to and including military invasion and exile. And that's basically what the Old Testament is all about. So when you've got this kind of a statement, hey, I'm going to give you uh, all the wisdom you need, I'm going to give you lots of blessings, but you're going to have to walk in my ways according to my statutes and commandments. Today, according to the, we'd say according to the Constitution, to the extent we still consider the Constitution understandable and applicable to presidents and things like that. And there's some debate about that. Then Solomon awoke and behold, it was a dream. It really happened, but it was God revealed himself through a dream when he, Solomon was asleep. But this was real direct divine revelation. And so Solomon came to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered burnt offerings, made peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. Okay, So I'd say a couple of strikeouts and one big home run in that passage where he's asking for wisdom. Now the biggest thing, look at chapter 5. Verse 3, the biggest thing Solomon does at a visible level, at an institutional level, is to build the first temple. Now, what did we have before a temple? We had a tabernacle. What's the difference? Tabernacle is a tent. It's portable. It moves around. They've been a nomadic people. But now they're set. They're solid. They're in good shape. They're going to have 40 years of prosperity. And now's the time to build a permanent structure, a physical structure, And Solomon was in charge of that. Look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5. This is uh, Hiram uh, and Solomon talking back and forth, uh, a local leader talking to Solomon. And Solomon uh, says, uh, You know that David, my father, the second king of Israel, was unable to build a house, a temple, for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now... 
peace dividend. The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Uh, as the Lord spoke to David, my father, saying, David, your son, Solomon, whom I'll set on your throne in your place, he will build the house. He'll build the temple in my name. Go to chapter 8. At that point, you get building details and structural de- details. Uh, and in chapter 8, we have the dedication seven years later. It took seven years to build the temple. And let's see some of the amazing and wonderful things Solomon does at this dedication of the temple. He's still hitting on all eight cylinders here, fairly early in his 40-year reign. Look at chapter 8, verse 22 through 29. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord uh, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord, that's the personal covenantal name for God, Yahweh, the God who enters into covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and sends us Jesus. O Lord, the God of salvation, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. All the other gods are idols. They asked R.C. Sproul once, the theologian, what's the major difference between Christianity and all the other major world religions? And uh, Sproul said, well, I think the major difference is, you know, the God of Christianity is real. That's kind of like the first thing we'd say, you know. So that's what he's saying here. You know, that's a pretty good answer because most of us would come up with trivia. You know, and he just got the point. Um, yeah, that'd be nice if I could find where I was. You know, I, I can remember stuff that happened when I was four, trying to remember what to say to the genie. But don't ask me where the car keys are. You know, um, yeah, verse twenty-three. Oh Lord, the God of our salvation, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or beneath. Keeping covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and showing hesed again, loving kindness, loyal love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, uh, who who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you promised him. You've kept the promise that his son would be able to build this temple. You've spoken with your mouth and have filled it with your hand as it is in this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father. Uh, uh, keep with your servant, David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel uh, if only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked in general general terms. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant, my father, David. Now, watch this. This is an awesome theological statement. He's built this building. Glory of God has gone in the Holy of Holies. And then Solomon says, but that's just a little picture of how big you are. But will God indeed dwell on the earth, the transcendent creator being? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. He's bigger than time and space. That's called transcendence. How much less this house, which I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray forward in this place. So, boom. Uh, that's a couple of snapshots of the good times. Let's look at uh, the other side of the picture. Go to chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11. And, you know, if you look at the trajectory of... Uh, Solomon's life, it basically looks like this. 
You know, uh, what we're reading here through chapter 8 is the highlight, and really into chapter 9 is the highlight. He's building the temple. He's really uh, focusing on the right things for the most part. But then over the next several decades, which are summarized in the essence of chapter 11, uh, we're told that uh, his wives turned his heart. He had a lot of them, right? So even if you're mad at a couple of your wives, you don't listen to them. You still got, you know, 695, you know, you're supposed to be talking to. Uh, his wives turned his heart after other lowercase g's that don't actually exist. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God. Uh, that's the salvation. When we say, when somebody talks about my God or his God, that's not possession. That's association, genitive association, the God you're associated with. He doesn't belong to us in the sense that he's our uh, cosmic uh, blesser. Uh, we are associated with him. That's the point. But uh, that's the problem. And then, in fact, he has a partial recovery late in life, and he does a few things that are pretty important. But let's look at the downhill slide here. Look at chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11. Now, King Solomon... Not a fighter, but definitely a lover. Loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said, they're sacrificing their children on fiery altars. Don't allow that kind of thinking to influence my country. You know, was the idea. Uh, these people are part of the theology and the culture that they've been warned about. You shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from uh, me to other gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, we're told that there's a list of nation states that aren't allowed to influence Israel, that aren't supposed to come into Israel and become immigrants because they're not buying into the existing system. They want to destroy the system, okay? You can think of some parallels, but I'm not going there right now. Uh, and when you look at that list, yeah, you have the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Sidonians and stuff like that. Uh, they're not supposed to be part of the congregation, not supposed to be part of the nation. And yet, there's a book in the Bible called Ruth. What do you mean about Ruth? Where's Ruth from? Ruth's a Moabite. When, when we're told in Old Testament Scripture you're not supposed to be influenced not to allow Moabites or Ammonites or Edomites to be part of the, of the nation, that means unforgiven Moabites, unforgiven Ammonites. That means unregenerate Ammonites and Moabites. When is a Moabite Ruth no longer theological? It's not an ethnic designation. It's a theological and worldview designation. When is a Moabite Ruth no longer a Moabite, so she's perfectly welcome. Not only was she welcome in Israel, don't tell anybody, she's like the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus in the physics, you know. So, you know, this, this is big. When is a Moabite like Ruth no longer a Moabite, so she's not under prohibition? When she becomes a proselyte. When she changes her faith and embraces Yahweh. Salvation is open to everybody, Old Testament, New Testament, but not, you gotta, recognize your need, trust in the Messiah, and allow Him to change you from the inside out. And that's what they're worrying about. And these people come in as they are. Uh, they're all legal immigrants, by the way. You know, he's, Solomon's signing all the paperwork. So that doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. Uh, but uh, they've turned their hearts, his heart away from other gods. 
than the infamous statement. Uh, ben, the only thing I can say, this is probably a round number. Okay, it's, it may not be exactly 700. It might be 699 or 703. You know, I don't think, I, I think round numbers are, are, how far is the, how far is the earth from the moon, from the moon? Yeah, let's start there. Anybody? Don't, don't Google it. I know you can get it on Google. People are going to say a quarter of a million miles, 250. It's actually 238, but it actually changes, you know. So a quarter of a million is fine. How far is the earth from the sun? 93 million. But it's not exactly on the dot, 93 million. It's a round, rounding off number. So you know, when you talk about large, large numbers, you know, you might say, well, 700 is not that big of a number compared to, you know, Google or something. It is when you talk about wives. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah, it could be on the number, but when you get round numbers like that, it's very often, it's just a, it's right there, you know. Uh, so it came about when Solomon was old, and this takes a couple of decades for him to get to his worst point before he eventually gets his uptake, uptick there. Uh, his wives, in their thinking, turned his heart away after other gods. He never repudiates his faith in God. He just adds all this other nonsense and superstition and just false teaching and immoral content. Uh, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David was. See that again, Stan? Now, we know what David did at his worst. And it was horrific. It's terrible. It's inexcusable. But when you look at the overall track of his life, God says it was wholly dedicated. Okay, It's talking about in general terms. So God is very gracious to his children. And that's encouraging. Not to encouragement to sin, but it's awfully encouraging when we do leak a little oil and we tend to want to judge ourselves at our worst moments. And probably everybody in this room, including me, has done something they're ashamed of and they'd be horribly embarrassed if anybody found out about. And God already knows about it, and so did Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew about it when he's dying on the cross before I did it and was willing to let his sacrifice apply to me in that area, which is a good thing. It's called grace. You couldn't make it up. Uh, verse 5. So Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place, a, an altar, uh, to worship, not just a pagan altar that had been used previously and now we're going to use it for the true God. He builds with government expense a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, which focused on all kinds of bizarre sexual activity and killing little children on fires to make points with their system. Uh, on the Mount of Olives, the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and from Molech, the detestable uh, idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives. You've got to keep those wives happy, right? It's hard enough to keep one wife happy. How in the world, if the wisest man who ever lived can't keep 700 happy, why would you want to multiply wives? You know, um, Just go with one. Just Just get the right one and then make it work, you know? And she'll tell you what you need to know. They always do. I mean, what's the problem? I mean, really. Uh, now, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice in chapter three, in chapter 9. And it commanded him concerning this very thing, don't go after the other gods. Uh, observe what God had commanded through Moses and all that constitutional, uh, theocratic truth that he was supposed to know as the chief executive. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and not just once, but over a period of decades, you've not kept my covenant, the Mosaic covenant, my statutes, which I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you, from your dynasty, 
and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime for the sake of your father David, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son, which is exactly what happens. We'll see that in chapter 12 toward the end of this study. However, I'll not tear what, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe, uh, to your son, Rehoboam, uh, for the sake of your servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So, who was Solomon? He's the third tribe, third king of Israel. Uh, he was a spiritual superstar, builds the temple, and then he goes through a long period of drifting out of close fellowship with God and ends up doing some really sketchy things in that process, right? Okay, so other than being king of Israel and building a temple, what else did Solomon do? Man, what does it take to please you people? I mean, come on. I mean, that's pretty good, you know. I mean, but I'll tell you, he did some more stuff. He wrote two psalms, about 150 of them. He wrote two of them. That's good. That's two more than you wrote, uh, you know, 72 and 127. He also wrote uh, three Old Testament books, or at least the, the greatest part of the book of Proverbs and two other books. I look at First Kings 4, and we're actually given a little insight into what Solomon was doing uh, throughout his life, but he starts early in his reign compiling wise sayings. Some of these he's come up on it with us on his own, and certainly he's the best source to get that, but also other things he hears. And we're told that uh, just as a kind of an aside, first Kings four thirty two, Solomon spoke three thousand proverbs. That's more than we've got in the book of Proverbs. So we're getting the best stuff of the three thousand. It's all good in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were a thousand and five. Now Tommy. You've got an incredible musical gift, but I mean, to write a thousand and five songs, that's a lot. I mean, I think uh, the Beatles uh, actually recorded just under 250 songs in over like eight years, you know. But Solomon wrote 1,005, and the book we call the Song of Solomon in the Hebrews is called the Song of Songs, and it's a superlative. This is the greatest of all of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote is the one in your Bible, James, in the Old Testament. So yeah, uh, he was a busy guy, not just with building projects and administration and tending to his, his wives, but also he wrote three biblical books. He writes the book of Proverbs. Just real quick, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> he didn't write the entire book because when you get toward the end, there are some other contributors to that. But the vast majority of this book, he uh, was the source for. And we see that in this first statement, which... We tend to think it's for the whole book, but it's really just for the first uh, roughly 24 chapters as you look at the structure. Proverbs 1, 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then for the first nine chapters, we have kind of an introduction, a motivation to get with wisdom. And then starting in chapter 10, you get these couplet Proverbs until you get to chapter 22, these two-liners that are really pithy statements of truth. You'll become so practically wise if you regularly expose yourself to this material. But look at chapter 25, verse 1 of Proverbs. Solomon, during his life, uh, composed and recorded uh, the major chunk of what we know as Proverbs now. But later, under the reign of King Hezekiah, some uh, other uh, contributors found other... Solomonic acti- uh, material and added it to the book as we know it, plus some other authors probably at the end as well. But notice in chapter 25, these also 
are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah found and transcribed and included in this book. So you've got the book of Proverbs was Solomonic. Now remember, uh, the doctrine of inspiration says, God the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors such that they composed and recorded without any error the message God wants in the original manuscripts of Scripture. So that process of composing and recording is being superintended, even if you've got the men of Hezekiah adding additional Solomonic uh, material after the death of Solomon. Uh, Book of Ecclesiastes, there's a, by the way, there's a chart, that's Chuck Swindoll's chart of Proverbs, and there's Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is clearly written by an older man who's got a lot of regrets, who looks back on all the false trails and, and uh, paths he traveled trying to find contentment, and he just said, you know, I should have just stayed centered on, centered on God. And that's, that's how you find contentment. And then if you've got other opportunities and other doors open and it's not illegal or immoral, go go for it, you know. But stay in balance and stay centered on God. And then the book of uh, Song of Solomon is all about eroticism and sexuality and marriage. Jeff Tidwell, after we studied it one time, said, you know, I always wonder why the Bible didn't talk more about sex because it's so important. Uh, and uh, uh, he didn't realize Song of Solomon goes into that in great detail. <clears throat> and uh, I can just say that basically it's saying sex is too good to waste outside of marriage, but uh, once you make that commitment, that's a big part of the glue that keeps it working and holds you together, and it's a very important part of life, even for the most spiritual of people. So, who was Solomon, third king of the United Tribes of Israel? Uh, what did he do other than build the temple and be the king for 40 years? He wrote three Old Testament books and two Psalms. And where are you going to find him? Where are you going to find him? In two places, you're going to find him talked about in First uh, Kings and in Second Chronicles. And you know, when you look at the Old Testament books, there, the 39 in the English version of the Old Testament, uh, you know, you've got the Law and the History and the Poetry books, through which Solomon wrote, and then the Prophets. When you come into this part of the Bible, a lot of people get confused about how those relate. But it's really not difficult at all. Those six books relate like this. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings tell you one complete story from beginning to end, the last uh, judge and the first uh, anointing uh, prophet of a king was Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, the split. And it goes through the whole story of that in those four books tell you one con- consistent story. First and second Chronicles is written later after the Babylonians take Judah into captivity and they come back. And from that perspective, the story is told again, emphasizing the importance of the national commitment the uh, country needs to have, the people need to have to God to avoid that kind of serious error. So you're going to see Solomon described in First Kings and Second Chronicles. We're going to focus on the First Kings narrative with references to Second Chronicles. But uh, they, they fit together. It's interesting, and, and we'll kind of fill in some of the gaps that uh, the one leaves from the other. Okay. So what does this all mean to me? This guy uh, lived from 970 to 930 B.C., and I'm living in 2016 uh, A.D., and I'm a big shot in middle school, and what does this mean to me, Jack's wondering. Well, I think we can learn a lot of lessons as we go through this, but just in general, I'd say a couple things. Number one, God uses all kinds of flawed human raw material to work out his will. Aren't you glad? You better be. Yeah. Look at Matthew chapter 1, if you don't believe it. You know, what Matthew just uh, 
in addition to saying from a Jewish point of view, here's why Jesus qualifies according to prophecy to be the Messiah, he's also saying, look at the way God has knitted this human fabric together with a lot of really sketchy people. I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, Judah, who's a direct, you know, progenitor of Jesus, had sex with his daughter-in-law, but only because she was dressed up as a Canaanite prostitute. So he just, he didn't know. You know, can you believe that? Yeah. That's that chapter nobody wants to read in Genesis, Genesis 38. But Jesus assumes you've read it. Matthew assumes you've read it. So you got that issue, you've got Rahab. What'd she do for a living? Yeah, she was a prostitute. You got Bathsheba in here, and she was, you know, uh, a problem, but she uh, actually turns out pretty good in the end. You get a lot of crazy stuff going on there. So uh, God uses all kinds of flawed human raw material, which is a good thing. Otherwise, we'd have no no shot, right? Uh, number two, God's no less gracious to believers who fail than He is to people coming to Him in faith for the first time. And you know, uh, I remember. Uh, I saw this documentary right before Jimmy Swaggart came out. Since we're talking about prostitutes, aren't you glad you came to church today? <sighs> this wasn't part of the plan, so if you get mad at me, it's my fault. You know, just here's the plan. It's all we're off the plan. Uh, they don't know. Spent all week on the plan. Uh, yeah, right before Jimmy Swaggart came out and admitted that he had been interacting with prostitutes, uh, they went back to his preaching like the previous six months. And that was like all he talked about from the pulpit. You know, don't do that kind of stuff. So, uh, trust me, I don't have any, uh, you know, uh, grand design, you know, to dump this on you. Uh, I'm doing something like that necessarily. But, I mean, this is something we need to preach. I mean, when, when you study Solomon, and by every other chapter, God's saying, hey, you're not as good as your dad, because he was totally dedicated to me. When you look at his overall devotion, overall life, even though we all know he had some real bad problems. You're thinking, wow, God is so gracious even in evaluating believers, Jan. Is that incredible that he would say that about about David? Maybe he'll say that about me. <laughs> you know? And again, I really think when Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming suddenly, I'm going to bring give my reward. I can't wait to give my reward to those believers who've actually borne some fruit. He's just like he can't wait to give us the presence. He's going to find stuff. He's going to catch us doing the right right thing. So, uh, yeah, we do have this dichotomy. You can be a child molester and anything before you come to faith, and if you Walk an aisle, sign a card, make a promise, or pray a prayer, or say you believed in Christ, and really, you really do. We all celebrate that. In fact, you'll write a book later and go into great detail about before and after, and it doesn't matter what you did. We don't care. Jesus forgives you. Uh, but then Christians do something that's uh, pretty horrific, and I'm not minimizing that. And uh, I used to think I was unshockable after doing this for 34 years. I'm still shockable. I'm still shockable. I've been shocked a couple times this year already. So, uh, and if you think I'm easy on people like that, you don't know why some people leave the church. Uh, you know, you just got really why? I mean, that's stupid. I mean, I, you know, um, and that's the nice things I'm telling them. You know, so believe me, if you think I've got an agenda to encourage you all to sin, I'm not really. But since you will, um, it's good to know that God's not any less gracious to believers who mess up than He is to believers coming the first time. Uh, the reality is Solomon wasted a lot of his good years uh, and lost a lot of peace of mind. If you don't believe that, read Ecclesiastes because he's just near suicide several times there in that story. But at the end, he renews fellowship. He's allowed to make a huge contribution to Scripture. 
And um, yet the uh, fallout lingered, and his split devotion to God ends up with a split in his whole nation. It influences the entire nation and uh, uh, has some really serious implications. Uh, thirdly, and this is important today because, you know, a lot of people want to, a lot of evangelicals want to take the core scripture and mix it with a little bit of everything else out in the spiritual world so everybody will like us and we won't offend anybody. And, you know, truth plus error equals error. You know, water plus poison equals poison. Beautiful glass of water, put a couple of drops of strychnine in it, it's water with just two little drops of strychnine. And, you know, that's, that's, that's like a two-step poison. You drink it, you take two steps, and you're dead, you know? So just a little bit of error, a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole loaf, especially on the big things, morally and doctrinally. There's no room for debate about the deity of Christ, uh, you know, salvation by grace, little things like that. Uh, there's no way we can add error and have truth come out of the baking process. You just can't do it. And uh, I know that makes you seem very uh, radical nowadays and very uh, exclusive, the opposite of inclusive, and, and all the people who want toleration uh, won't, will tolerate anything but somebody who actually has some basic principles they won't compromise on. And then you're a throwback, you know, to the 19th century, and that's where all the hang-ups come from. And really, that's not what it was. And this is a big issue, Jack, for teenagers. I mean, is it going to be the crowd or Christ? Now, you've got an athletic career. You're a football player, a basketball player, a baseball player, a swimmer, a discus thrower, a pole vaulter, a wrestler, and you also knit in your spare time. <laughs> he didn't do all that stuff, but he does a lot of it. And so you're going to get a lot of attention from guys who will admire you and girls will think you're pretty cute because you are pretty cute uh, to start with, plus you're an athlete. And you can use that to do a lot of stupid, silly, selfish things and get really impressed with yourself, follow the crowd. Or you can use it as a platform. Tim Tebow, uh, sometimes he's a little clunky. Sometimes he said a few things I'm not crazy about. But, man, you know, nobody doubts the guy's integrity. And he's had, uh, which is one reason he's a lightning rod. A lot of people in the culture hate him. But, uh, Jack, you could be the next Tim Tebow. You could be the Tim Tebow of Marlowe. And we want you to do that. But you're not going to get there by making compromises on the edge or adding poison to the water of the gospel. So take this home. It's interesting, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon writes at the end of his life, after he gets back in fellowship and looks back, he says, what you need to know about the heart of the gospel. He says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, look at this, Lindley. Solomon says, and he knows this from experience, surely there is not a perfectly righteous person on the earth who always does the right thing, and who never sins. Now, we tend to default to Romans 3.23, right, Ron? All of sin comes short of the glory of God. That's that's the, that's what he just said in Ecclesiastes 7, didn't it? Same thing. That hasn't changed. And then we also cite, and I think it's great to cite, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But that's not the end of the statement. But the free gift of God, and that's... Uh, it's a special term, not just gift, but it's free gift. It's, a, it's two words there. It's, it's totally free. The free gift of God is what? For sinful people, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so you've got to realize you're a sinner before you need to recon, you recognize your need for a Savior. And the Old Testament New Testament is very clear about that. Human history is very clear about that. Uh, Yahoo, 
Uh, Drudge Report, very clear about that. But we live in a culture that kind of denies that, and that's a problem. Because the heart of Christian truth is, uh, he who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be a sin offering for us on the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Solomon, like all of us, is a sinful mess apart from the Lord. And as a believer, he manages to uh, squander a lot of his spiritual capital. And yet, uh, God still manages to use him mightily anyway, and that should be an encouragement for all of us. Uh, Notice at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, the conclusion, when you've tried everything else to fulfill you, and Solomon had tried literally everything he could in that culture could use, money was no expense. The conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God is not abject fright. It's a reverential awe that motivates us to do the right thing even when nobody else is looking. Which is why we read in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not fearing condemnation, but there should be what drives us is not just the profit margin or trying to impress the coach or trying to impress the babes or trying to impress the, the, the spouse or the family or the church family. It ought to be a reverential awe for God that motivates us to do the right thing for the right reason, even when nobody else is looking. Conclusion is this, fear God, keep his commandments. This applies to everybody, including the king. For God will bring every act of judgment for scrutiny, evaluation, even if it's hidden from other people, whether it's good or bad. But uh, the Savior who Solomon anticipated said this, Come unto me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You find rest in Christ. You find rest initially by trusting in him as Savior. Uh, And as a believer, you find rest in him by abiding, centering on him, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but even on Monday night or prom night. Okay, So we're rolling on Solomon. We'll come back next week and look at uh, the first chapter or so. And you're going to see some interesting, some sketchy sketchy things happening with David uh, and even Solomon. But we'll see uh, how all the details work out. So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as your spirit in, uh, enlightens us and illumines us to see uh, principles that relate to our day just all over this story and all over this man's life, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, like a spiritual cruise missile, take aspects of this truth to each one of us with a teachable heart. Maybe somebody needs to receive Christ for the first time. Maybe others of us need to get recentered. Maybe others of us need to think about certain things in different ways. Maybe some areas we're starting to compromise in our business, in our personal life, or whatever. Uh, let us see how you can center us back on the Savior, the one who died for us and rose again. Uh, I pray you'd be glorified in that process and the product of that. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.